0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org.
1: Our New Testament reading this morning is from Romans 11, verses 33-36. through O oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is, set, is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and, it, and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is
0: Chase Davis. I'm one of the pastors of the Well Church up in Boulder, Colorado, the Republic of Boulder. Uh, I'm glad to be here this morning at Brian's invitation. I always like coming down to Trinity. I've preached here a few times. I love this church. I'm very happy for what God is doing in and through this church, and we are praying with you and alongside you uh, from our elders, from our church to you. So I was blessed to worship with you uh, a few times when I was recently on sabbatical, and that was a wonderful time of fellowship and worship, so it's really good to be with you. This morning, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 8, if you want to open there. We're going to be working through the entire chapter, uh, top to bottom. Uh, Ecclesiastes is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's uh, Ecclesiastes and Romans are my two favorite books, and I was thrilled when Brian asked me to preach, and it was Ecclesiastes, because I love this book so much. It's a wonderful book, uh, and I want to explain a little bit as to why, the context. When we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes, if you were to just pick up your Bible for the first time, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you have been a Christian, it's been been a long time since you've read the Word of God. If you picked up Ecclesiastes, you read through it cover to cover this afternoon, you might walk away depressed. You might walk away a bit dour. If you read Proverbs, it's a bit of a contrast. They're both written by Solomon, and Proverbs has a bit more of a hopeful bent. Uh, there's a bit more uh, life application, wisdom, in this way, it will go well with you. Ecclesiastes is more of the depressed philosopher. He's uh, reflecting on life. Now, that's the first glance, if you just didn't know what was going on and what Solomon is getting after. But what Solomon is inviting us to do is explore life beyond the vapor, life beyond the sun, because we live under the sun, Ecclesiastes, speaks to our darkness and despair and life. And for a lot of us, uh, we're familiar with this. Some of us, maybe not, but for a lot of us, we are. I remember as a young man growing up, I was what they referred to as emo. Anybody know what emo was? Uh, you may not <laughs> believe that now, uh, but that's what I was into, the type of music I was into, very dark, depressing music, moody music. Uh, A lot of that stuff still hasn't changed. I enjoy good moody music, moody movies, that kind of stuff. But Ecclesiastes really meets that in us. All of us have moments of despair, depression, anxiety, wondering what the purpose of life is. Some of us can more easily shake those feelings and enjoy life a, a bit more simply. But others of us, we contemplate a little bit harder and we reflect more deeply on why it is we're doing what we're doing. How did we end up in this position? Where is the point of, or what is the point of life, and where is it all going? And I think Ecclesiastes points us to God and finding joy. Uh, Because when we look at the pain, the chaos, the futility of life, we see people pass away. What Solomon wants to ultimately point us to is God, and whom joy can be found. And that's what all of us ultimately want, is joy. We want joy. We want a sense of something that cannot be taken away And that we are satisfied. I'm sure you can think back on a moment in life, maybe it was a wedding day or something like that, where you sensed joy. But joy seems to be fleeting for many of us, and until we find joy in God, it will be fleeting. We can pursue joy through travel, work, family, food, experiences, recreation, money, but we know deep down that all of that is fleeting, and that's what Solomon reminds us of. The the meal ends, the family members pass away, the... The high wears off. You can't take money to the grave. And so Solomon in Ecclesiastes addresses all of these different things. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes is writing wisdom literature. So wisdom literature is different than law. When we're reading these kind of passages... What we're trying to gain is wisdom. When a a child is young, a child needs law, black and white, right and wrong. Here's what we do. It's hard to teach a child wisdom, meaning discernment, making the right choice in any given situation. A child needs law. When we grow up, as we grow up and we learn the law, we need wisdom. We need to grow in the ability to discern the right decision in any any given situation. And there's a lot of situations in life where if you make a decision, there's going to be bad things that happen either way. There's going to be, you know, uh, consequences that neither party's going to enjoy or you may not enjoy, and so we need wisdom. And so each week in Ecclesiastes, you've been exploring what it's like that life is vapor, that it just seems to be like a fog, a mist, where we're under the sun and we can't see clearly. Growing up, we would drive up from Texas to Colorado, we'd go through New Mexico. I refuse to drive through New Mexico anymore when I visit my family because they have the speed traps and like the slow down lane there. Uh, But back then we would. But there would be, oftentimes there would be fog in New Mexico. And this fog was thick. It was either fog or snow. And you couldn't see the road, you couldn't see the lines. You had to go really slow to see what was going on. And I think a lot of times in life, that's how it feels. There's fog. I don't see clearly, I, I don't have a vision, I can't understand what God is doing. And yet, in Ecclesiastes, that's not a deterrent for us. That's not something that we are to despair of. Instead, Solomon points us to find joy in God, joy in our powerlessness. So why don't I pray and we'll look at the text. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that you've brought us together to worship you, to reflect and ponder your word so that you can speak to us. I pray that we would have receptive hearts, that you would open our ears those of us who need to know you in a profound way this morning for the first time, that God, you would save them this morning. And I pray for those of us who do know you, that we would be renewed in our faith, restored in our convictions this morning, and our belief in you and our worship of you. God, help us to see you through the mist, through the vapor, and help us to find joy in you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in Ecclesiastes 8.1, uh, Solomon starts talking about the relationship of himself to the king, which is interesting because he himself is a king. And he says, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases." For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge for more, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. What Solomon is getting after here is actually in verse 9 and he's reflecting back in the prior verses on his reflections from verse 9. What he's talking about is power, power and service. We all serve somebody. We all report to someone. And so Solomon is reflecting on what it looks like under the sun in relation to power. My wife is uh, due in two weeks with our third child. Uh, She's very glad, I also am glad, that it's a baby girl, because our first two were boys. Uh, And that was eight years ago. My boys are eight and 10 now, and I always joke that it took us eight years of recovery to be ready for the next baby uh, after the energy our two boys have dispensed. But when my oldest son was two, my wife was pregnant, and he just was full of life and full of energy, still is. But he wanted to wrestle and fight a lot as young boys are wont to do. And he would, I would walk in the house from work and he would just charge me and attack me and he wanted to jump on me. And if I laid down, he would assume I'm a trampoline and he would just totally just climb on top of me, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what was always humorous to me as a dad is like, he's powerless. He's two. I'm not like that strong, but still like I'm his dad. He's not going to overwhelm me but it's fun as a dad to do that kind of thing, right? It's fun to have that relationship with your son. Well, it's not so fun in life when we encounter forces beyond our control that we can't overpower. We live in a world where there's problems and situations that don't lend themselves to being solved by us. We can despair that we look around and we see evil and wickedness and suffering in the world, and we don't know what to do. We really don't know our place, and we live feeling a bit powerless Futile, unable to conquer. We try to hide from that feeling by working harder, accomplishing more. Uh, there's this common thing that people will do called uh, rage cleaning. I don't know if you've heard of this. Where if you feel powerless in your life, one of the most effective things you can do is go home and start cleaning your house thoroughly. And it's actually very satisfying, but it's a distraction. It, it gives you the feeling of power when you feel powerless. Others of us, when we're told, you can't do that, there's no way that'll work out, we feel challenged and we rise up. We say, well, I'll show you. I'll prove to you I can. Uh, but all of us know the feeling of being challenged, feeling subjugated, trying to rise against us, or against it. And in, in kind of our American context, especially in the West, we like the, the idea of individualism and this feeling that, like, we can overcome anything. Well, Solomon confronts that in us. And so he looks at a few scenarios. The first, of course, he gives specifically in the case of the king, that others have power over us. We're ruled by others. We have bosses who demand we work a certain way. We have a government that demands we pay taxes and operate in a certain way or else. We live our lives in the shadow of rulers, The teacher in this text highlights the reality of his day, the situation they were in, which was a king. if you question the king, well, what do you think is going to happen? You're not going to have a good life, and you're not going to have life much longer. It's not going to go well with you. So he says, you should obey the king. And we see in verse, like I mentioned, 8 and 9, he's saying all of this in light of the fact that why does man have power over man to his hurt? This is the theme that made him reflect on the king. This is just reality. There are powers that can hurt you, overpower you. This is what makes the state the state, that it's coercive. It has the power of the sword. Specifically in this context, though, he's thinking of someone who has access to the king. So you have the king's ear. How should you relate to that power? And he says, look, you should not question Think of somebody who's like a middle manager in a company who reports to a boss. He's not necessarily the boss, maybe he has people that report to him. But he doesn't have the authority to change the company. What does the teacher say? He says the wise thing to do in light of this situation of powerless, this impetus, is to obey the king. You should do what the king says because he's in charge. If you do what he sa- if you don't do what he says, you're done, you're fired. That's what it like happens in a company. You're fired. But he says, if you do what the king says, it will go well with you. Obey the king because you're not in charge. He has greater responsibility. It's like this. Maybe you've been in a situation, you've been in a company and you believe it could be run better. Anyone ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it's just me. You're in a company and you're looking at your boss and like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing and this thing could be so much better, right? The boss tells you what to do and oftentimes you think there's a better way. And the teacher is saying, "You think there's a better way because you're not in charge. You just have one perspective. You don't know the big picture. You don't have the PNL, you're not projecting the profits for next quarter. You're making pizza. You're selling clothes, closing sales deals, whatever it is. So when you think you know what is best, most times, wisdom here, most times it's better assume you don't, because you're not in charge, and you don't have that responsibility, and the boss holds all the power. The teacher says that if you obey, it's going to go better for you. And this reminds me of God's law in the fifth commandment where you honor your father and mother so that it will go well with you in the land. It's the one commandment with a promise that follows. And it kind of is riffing off that law and applying wisdom in a broader context that if you will obey and honor the authorities above you, it will generally go well for you. We're not talking about blind obedience. We're talking about wisdom. We're talking about wisdom. Remember, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. You're not necessarily sinning if you question. All the teacher is saying that, look, in the long term, it's going to go better for you if you just do your job well. You show up on time. You don't question. You just try to help. You try to be a good whatever you are in the company, whatever you are in relation to the government. And if you stick it out, oftentimes it's better than questioning everything. I mean, anyone can see this in young people. I've seen lots of young people, recent college grads in Boulder, will move from job to job every three months because nothing ever truly satisfies their career aspirations that's not a fruitful way to go about your life it would be better to stick with something to be patient and to trust the Lord's providence than to keep uh, moving from job to job every six months and back then of course under the king you could have been killed for questioning so it's a little bit different today but what we're doing is we're talking about trusting the leaders God has placed over you because they have more authority than you. The king would have had to trust because he was placed by God. And your boss over you is not by chance, but on purpose. The real issue Solomon is getting after is, do you, do you question, do you have an attitude of trust with those who you associate with who are over you? Or do you have the ability to trust them? Or are you operating out of suspicion? And so Solomon just wants to help us Trust our leaders. The author of Hebrews talks about this as well, how we should respect the leaders in the church. We should come to them with an attitude of generosity, trusting that they know what they're doing. That doesn't mean we can't ask questions. That doesn't mean that leaders don't get it wrong. But we should generally have a disposition as people of God who trust God's providence and are joyful in our trust of God. That, they, on, that the leaders over us should be honored and respected. So this is the first example He's going to give two more. This is the first example that he gives as far as it pertains to living under the sun under the power of man that you should respect and obey those over you giving them the benefit of the doubt cuz they're in charge. But what else is that the only thing that makes us feel like life is vapor? No. No, maybe you're your own boss. Maybe you own the company. Maybe you like live off the grid. You have solar panels. You have a well. You report to no one. Good for you. What other situations in life might we encounter that expose our powerlessness and prove our futility? The second example he gives is in verse ten. He saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also a vanity. He looks at everything. He looks at the situations we face to the celebration of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. First, he talks about the celebration of the wicked. This is what he's referencing in 8.10. He's saying that wicked people seem to prosper. He's talking about Jerusalem here. He's talking about the holy city, the the crown jewel of, of God's people where they would go for worship. And he goes to Jerusalem and what does he see? He sees wickedness celebrated. He sees wickedness fill the street. Wicked people, people that disobey God's ways, celebrated in the street. The ways of God and his laws should have been celebrated. Holiness should have been followed. But instead, we get wickedness. And the teacher points out that these wicked people have been celebrated. He's watching the city celebrate the wicked. And we see this today too. And the place of loving, holy, godly relationships between a man and a woman. We see sexual deviants paraded around our town, right? We see all sorts of wickedness celebrated in our society. Those with the most money are the most powerful, are the most celebrated. We see perversion under a banner of pride held up on flags and flaunted. We see our leaders call call it a summer of pride, celebrating sexual wickedness. Not only this, but we live in a world that celebrates death, violence, and sin, And even if you're not a Christian, you you witness this. We have movies that glorify violence, murder. This is vanity, is what he says. It's a vapor. It's confusing. It makes it hard to know how to live. Because we'd like to live in a world that celebrates good things. That points us in a good, godly direction. That rewards the good and punishes the bad. But that's not what Solomon sees, and that's oftentimes not what we see. It makes life seem pointless. What does the celebration of the wicked have to do with powerlessness? The point the teacher is making is that when the wicked are celebrated, we don't know what is right. We look at our society, and we know things aren't good, and we're confused. If people are willing to celebrate sexual deviance, what does that say about our world? Is God truly in charge? Is this life under the sun? And so Solomon says in response to this, he says that we should fear the Lord. He says this in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear the God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. It would be better to fear the Lord, to worship the living God, even while wickedness is celebrated because fearing the Lord is our duty. He talks about that at the end of the book. Hopefully I'm not giving away the end of the book for you. But at the end of the book, he says that this is the whole duty of man. Fear the Lord and obey his ways. We are to fear and worship him with trembling because it would be better to serve God and worship him than to do wickedness and be celebrated by men. It reminds me of the old adage that I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church and they had on the wall in like the uh, VBS. What is popular is not always right and what is right is not always popular. It's the same concept in, in Ecclesiastes that Solomon is getting at. And he says he has another one. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. So this is how you know that Solomon's shifting to another example. There's a vanity. He talks about the righteous. The righteous seem to get a raw deal because the righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. This is the idea that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. We've all seen this, right? We've seen people who are really loving, patient, and kind. They get terminal cancer. What is going on? That doesn't compute, that doesn't make sense. And we see this with people who are like totally self-absorbed, corrupt, maybe at your company or in the government, and they get more rich and comfortable. And this is an idea that the teacher has highlighted, Solomon has highlighted throughout the book. See, we all wanna think that if we're good and nice to other people, it's gonna go well for you. This is the heart of both the prosperity gospel and karma, and just religion. That if you're good, other religions besides Christianity, of course. That if you're good, if you work hard, if you're nice, it's going to go well with you. Because karma is utterly religious. There's this uh, restaurant in Boulder called uh, Southern Sun. There's also Under the Sun. Great restaurant, you should go. Uh, nice little brew pub, and they've got great burgers. Um, back in the day, before COVID, they only took cash. I think they've changed that policy uh, since COVID. But back then, uh, I would often forget cash. I didn't carry it around as much. And they would have at the front, they would have something called karma envelopes. And so the idea was you could eat and then you could take a karma envelope and then you could take it home and mail them a check to pay for your food. Uh, Of course, this is silly. I can't imagine how much money was lost. I must confess, I was tempted once or twice to take advantage of this system because uh, this is just a karmic idea. This reality that we do good and yet bad things come to us, it's really discouraging, is it not? I mean, this is what Solomon's asking us. Can we be honest? That when you do everything that's right, check all the boxes, pay your taxes, obey, and yet bad things still happen to you, that's pretty discouraging. It's disheartening. It's not motivating. This is why the teacher highlights this situation, that in the face of a situation where you've done everything right, it can still go wrong. You pay your taxes, show up, do what is right, and things still go bad. And these situations reinforce our sense of powerlessness in life. Like, I tried my best and it still didn't work out. It's extremely humbling, but what it's not supposed to be is depressing. It's meant to be a reality check for you and I as the people of God. It's meant to clarify what life is really about. What does the teacher conclude about this powerless that we experience, the futility that we face? Does he say that, like other philosophers, we should just give up on life? Or that there is no God? Everything is pointless. What does he conclude? 8.15 says this, And I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under. The Son. He commends joy. He says we should enjoy what we have. We should eat and drink and enjoy our life. We should have good food and drink and share it with others. We should enjoy what little we have. We should have joy. Why? Why? Because life is a gift from God. We should take advantage of what little time we have. Our days are a gift from God, not to be squandered but enjoyed. This is something that the teacher has hit on before that life is a gift and not the end. We should appreciate what we have. Joy in God is the antidote to despair. And we can have joy in God by fearing him and enjoying what he has given us. When I was reflecting on this passage this week, I was reminded of what Paul says in Philippians 4, where he talks about he has learned uh, how to be content in all things, riches and poverty. And it's because of the Lord. He's trusting the Lord. By fearing God... Trust in the Lord, obeying him, we can have joy. And in verse 17, 8, 17, Then I saw all the work of God. A man cannot find out the work is, that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You have all sorts of gurus out there, life coaches, services that are talk about enhancing your life, optimizing your schedule, making you more productive and a better person, people that claim to have figured it out. Maybe if you just read this book, sign up for this webinar, do whatever it is, get on this diet, do more working out, whatever it is. People have a lot of wisdom out there. But ultimately, life is about fearing God and enjoying God. And ultimately, in verse 817, what he's trying to encourage us to do is stop overanalyzing everything. We should not worry as much. We should stop thinking we can know everything and that we can find the right formula to somehow have power over life because we are not as powerful as we think we are. We're just not. We are beings made by a creator. We should come to grips with the fact that we are in the hand of God. We shouldn't be vexed and overanalyzed. We can't know everything and the people who say you can know everything are fools. We shouldn't worry as much about how to rule at life. We should enjoy it, receive it as a gift. Enjoy the Lord. We don't need to try to find all the answers because we can't. It's not a giving up attitude. This is an attitude of like nothing matters. It's not nihilism. It's a wise attitude. It's living in the reality that you aren't in charge and that's good. You should enjoy what you've been given, content with what you have. I want you to, for a moment, think about your own life. Consider what it would be like for you to wake up tomorrow and live full of joy and not overanalyzing everything. How much better would your life be? And that's what Solomon is trying to remind us to do. Who wouldn't want that? But is this all, is this all, Solomon, all Solomon wants us to, to remember? Just enjoy and realize we're not powerful, just food, drink, and pleasure in the face of futility The temptation to believe that life is just materialistic and hedonistic. This is not the end. The reality is that we are not in control, but God is. Because in verse 17, he says, I saw all the work of God. He also talks about the hand of God in the next chapter. He talks about under the sun, how life is a vapor, God is beyond the sun. Our life and the outcome of it is in the hand of God, He is in control. This is essential. This is an essential biblical reality. It's a reality made clear from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. God is in charge. But is this good? Because if life seems random and wicked people prosper, righteous people suffer, we're all subject to someone, we're not in charge, can we trust God? Well, we see that God's perspective is above the sun. He's beyond the vapor. He sees things that we cannot see. He sees things that we cannot see. The other day, I was hanging out with some friends, and one of my friends has this infrared spotting scope where you can see like animals and other things that uh, have a body signature on it, right? He can change it all sorts of crazy colors. It's really fun because in the dark, you can see all sorts of things that you can't see without the scope. And it reminded me of how much God sees things that we just don't see. God knows things that we don't know. God is omnipotent, omniscient, He knows everything. He's all powerful, and so when we face the vapor of life, when we face the mist, when we can't see the road, we aren't to be discouraged because there is who, there is one who can see the road, who made the road, who knows what's happening. We spend our lives under the sun, under the the rhythms of life, only able to see what's in front of us. We have minutes that come and go. And we'll never get them back. But in the hand of God, in the face of God's sovereignty, we don't have a God who is indifferent to our plight. We have a God who in the vapor of all of these things, in the mist, in the chaos, he's not just some clockwork God that wound it all up and let it go. He's intricately involved in upholding everything by his own power. He intervened in our futility. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Our futility isn't all we have. When we experience powerlessness, it is an opportunity to know the God who became a baby, powerless and helpless, so that we could know him. When we run into the wall and face the reality that we aren't in charge, whether that's a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, these are gifts from God to turn us to him. He doesn't call us to give up on life. He calls us to himself himself. And so the invitation for all of us, if we're experiencing the futility of life right now, if you feel powerless, like you can't change, you're anxious, you're overanalyzing, you're fretful, you're worried, you're despairing, you're downcast, come to the Lord. He is sovereign and good and fear the Lord. Peter Lightheart, and his commentary on Ecclesiastes, put it this way. Ecclesiastes reminds us that this moral order is in the hands of a sovereign, free, incomprehensible God, and we cannot know God's ways exhaustively any more than we can know God. Ecclesiastes does not deny the sovereignty and transcendence of God, but it affirms it in the most radical way. If God is transcendent ruler of all things, then we should expect we won't be able to understand all that he does. If we are creatures created literally from nothing, then we shouldn't expect our own lives to be anything but missed. The realization that we are not in control is no offense, no cause for anxiety, unless we believe that we should be in control. And that's the great offense and sin, is we think we should be God. So here's what this looks like. It means admitting to God that you are powerless. That you aren't in control. It means you're ready to stop trying to prove you've got it all together and that you can rule your life. You turn from that, you repent from that, and you turn to God. You call to God, declaring his sovereignty over everything, admitting your need from him. Because apart from God, we die. And when we die, apart from God, we truly enter into futility. Because for people that don't know God, this life is the closest they're ever going to get. And for us that do know God, this life is the closest to hell we will ever experience. You come to know God by knowing that he came to you first. Jesus Christ came, lived, died to bring you back to himself. He didn't call you to clean yourself up before you come to him. He said, come to me and I will wash you. I will cleanse you. He will make you holy. You call to God for mercy because you know that your life is futile apart from Him. In God, our purpose has life and meaning and we can enjoy it. As the Westminster Catechism puts it, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? And that is what Solomon is pointing us to here. So, friends, what are we to do in the face of our futility? According to the teacher, we are to live wisely Knowing that we cannot control everything, that we live in subjugation to people or situations that we can't change. And in light of that, we enjoy what we have. But more than that, we allow ourselves to see life as it is in order to go to the one who made us. When we face our powerlessness, we go to the one who is powerful. When life seems pointless and we can't figure it out, we go to the one who made it all. We need not despair because why? We fear the Lord. We can trust the Lord, and we can, like Solomon, commend joy. We can commend joy, knowing that joy comes from knowing the living God, Jesus Christ, who lives today and is seated at the right hand of the Father. See, under the sun, in the face of indomitable forces, we should seek to obey and know our place so that we can enjoy. But the reality is life isn't always enjoyable. I know for some of you that may be a buzzkill, but life isn't always enjoyable. All we have is not just pleasure. Our only hope is joy in Jesus Christ. God allows us to experience futility to point us to the one who made us, to himself, so that we can find joy by fearing him. Our dissatisfaction with our lives under the sun is an exit sign for where we can find true happiness, true joy in God, satisfaction. Life is not meaningless. We need not despair that the wicked prosper or are celebrated and that the righteous suffer. Why? Because we know the God of hope. We know Jesus Christ, crucified, raised, and ascended, who is seated in power and authority, and he is with us. We can laugh and find joy in all that God has given us because it is a gift to be received. The vapor is not meant to dishearten you, but meant to remind you of your need for God. See, a church is a people that have been called out of darkness into light, the light of Jesus Christ. They are a people for whom the joy of the Lord is their strength. Churches, like Trinity Church, who live sober-mindedly in the vapor, knowing that life seems futile, and yet fear the Lord and find joy in Jesus Christ, are immovable. Their lampstand cannot be removed. They will be a testimony to generations of God's goodness and mercy this kind of church can change the world as it develops I'm sorry, as the world devolves and decays into depravity because the church outlives cultures and nations while the world may celebrate wickedness we do not because we know the righteous one and he has made us holy there is hope in God friends, this is the message of Ecclesiastes that resonates so deeply with me especially in our day and age. We have uh, what some people call a crisis of loneliness, a loneliness epidemic where people don't know where to turn. People have less friends than ever. People escape into media and virtual reality and all sorts of things. People are not satisfied and people are not well, particularly men. Men are not doing well. Life seems to be chaotic, sometimes pointless, We grind and we work hard, and for what? And we don't understand what's going on. We can't control the forces beyond our own life. We're tempted to just move out into the wilderness, leave it all behind, because it seems too hard sometimes. And yet Ecclesiastes meets us in that particular notion, that moment, that feeling of despair, that questioning, that wondering, what's it all about? And God meets us right there, Jesus comes to us right there in his death and resurrection and he gives us joy because there is hope in God who lives today. May we fear him, keep his commands, and come to the one who gives us new life, new eyes to see, and gives us a joy that cannot be taken away. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom you offer to us in Ecclesiastes. I pray that this church, Trinity Church, would be built up into maturity by knowing how to walk wisely, by fearing you, by obeying your commands. I pray that they would enjoy you and glorify you in all that they do. And I pray that through this morning's worship service to you, that God, you would hear our cry for mercy. You would assure us of your salvation and that we would leave this place satisfied in you, joyful in you, fearing you. And I pray that that joy in you would renew our strength so that we can love our families Love one another as you have loved us and glorify you in everything we do. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.